Some of you may remember what it was like to be in college, kind of be in your early 20s, late teens, early 20s. When I worked at Grand King University, I spent a lot of time with that age group. Uh, this, was, this has been a few years ago now that I worked at the university, and uh, mainly what I did there was mentoring college students in the faith. So uh, we, we call that discipleship, right? Uh, that, that's the main thing I was doing day in and day out with college students. And one of the kind of pervasive issues that pressed in on the minds of young people, and you may remember this because this is, this is probably true, I think, for, for most of us. One of the main issues that would press in on their minds was what they were going to do with their lives. Some of us are still worried about that, aren't we? What are we going to do with our life? What would their career be? Right? This was really kind of the crux. This, this gave purpose to their time at university. What am I going to study where am I going to uh, spend my time, right? Um, and indeed, for, for, for a lot of, of young people, that really seems to be the, the purpose of life, is to figure out, what am I going to do? Certainly was the case for me. What am I going to do? I often even still think this way. What am I going to do? What's, my, what's the point of my life in terms of what am I going to do? I've asked God so many times, what is my purpose? What's the meaning of my life? What have you called me to? And most of the time, I am looking for a professional type answer. I am looking for, uh, 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 am I supposed to be in ministry? Am I supposed to be a writer? That's something I love to do. And I've wondered, am I supposed to be a writer? Am I supposed to be a computer programmer? I, I enjoy that. Is my ultimate purpose to be a, a parish priest? And, and, and I still think this way all the time. In, in fact, uh, uh, so many times I have thought, I, I remember thinking um, uh, on my way to ordination, finally I've found what I'm supposed to do. Now maybe I'll be happy. Um, what's my goal in life? What is it? I'm always trying to figure it out. Every year I write down these goals for the year. Maybe if I can't get a goal for life, I'll get some goals for the year, right? Uh, so I write down these goals... And, and not always consciously, but, I, but I'm approaching it like this. If I accomplish these, I'll be on my way to accomplishing my purpose. If I accomplish these, that will make me happy. Now, I've now been in full-time Christian ministry uh, nearly uh, a decade. Uh, so long enough to reflect over my accomplishments or lack thereof. Right? in comparison to other people with sometimes satisfaction if I'm feeling a little prideful that day sometimes disappointment or despair if I'm wondering why I'm not the next Matt Chandler or something like that and I think to myself well how well am I doing and I start to evaluate how well am I doing on my purpose and on some level Again, I think if I can just accomplish that thing, if I can just get it done, whatever it is, I will gain life that actually has a transcendent, eternal character. That's what happiness is, right? It's getting that life that's, that's, that's transcendent. But maybe even if I don't do everything I think I want to do or I think I should do, at least I can always fall back on the fact that I mean, I can't be that much of a failure, right? Because my family is full of missionaries and pastors. So I can't be that bad, no matter what. Surely I have at least some value just by association. 
maybe if I do the right stuff and if I'm thankful to the Lord that I have basically a respectable family that has accomplished a lot of stuff that I can fall back on. Maybe then I'll be content. Maybe then I'll be happy. Right? This is a typical thought pattern for me. Something I work through frequently. I think this is how a lot of people think, whether they're Christians or not. See, Paul casts a really different vision for the Christian life in today's passage from Philippians. It's, it's a beautiful, breathtaking, challenging, chain-breaking kind of passage from Philippians chapter 3. Because that whole thought pattern, by the way, that, that I've been throwing out there for you, is really a form of slavery, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it's, 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 it's no good. It's no good. See, for Paul, there, there is a goal for the Christian and for the Christian community. There is meaning. There is purpose. There is a heritage to fall back on. But it has nothing to do with what you've accomplished or what you're going to accomplish. <laughs> it has nothing to do with where you're from or even who you think you are. Instead, the Christian goal has everything to do with who you know, who you are with, who you are pursuing, and who God thinks you are. To put it simply, this is the whole point of this message today. For Christians, the goal is Christ. For Christians, the goal is Christ. Nothing and no one less. Our meaning and our purpose is totally found in that relationship. In that relationship with Jesus. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. A lot of you have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, that sounds too easy, Father Nathan. Does that sound like enough to you to be in relationship with Jesus? Does that sound like enough to make you happy? See, when I'm in that thought pattern that I described, what I'm really, what I'm really kind of thinking is, well, no, Jesus isn't enough to make me happy. I really have got to do all this stuff. And what I'm missing is that I've already got <laughs> what I need. It's already been given to me. Right? For many in the early church, this did sound too easy. That you just had to be in relationship with Jesus. Now, let me give you some of the cultural context behind this passage that Barbara read for us. The, the Israelite people, okay, were God's chosen people to be in relationship with him. They had this special relationship with the Lord. And as a result of that relationship, they were, they were called to be a blessing to the whole world. And as a sign of God's promise towards them in this regard... They, the, the men were circumcised as babies and sometimes as adults if they were converts in. And it was always this sign of grace. That's what it was supposed to be for. It was a sign of, of grace and promise that God was going to follow through on his plan for his people. So over time, however, as humans tend to do, some people forgot that this sign was a sign of grace. And they began to approach it as a sign of privilege over others. I'm circumcised and you're not. And they kind of reduced membership in God's family. Instead of it being about relationship, it was about 
having an external marker primarily. Nothing wrong with external markers, but you can't start there. It had, it had for some people become simply a way of marking out their identity of just being in the right group and claiming the right heritage. It had become a rite of passage only. And for Christians at that time, uh, some were essentially saying, yes, you need to be in relationship with Christ, but then also you need to perform this external act as kind of an accomplishment for being a convert. And it wasn't that circumcision itself was an evil practice, okay? And not even for Christians at that time. Mike Paul certainly isn't anti-Jewish by any stretch. And he himself circumcised some Christians like Timothy that were, that were in the Jewish faith. But keeping it as a strict requirement, especially for Gentile believers, which were those that were kind of coming out of, of ethnic Judaism, undermined the truth that God had fulfilled the promise of circumcision in Christ. See, Christ was the perfect Israelite that finally blessed the whole world. And part of that blessing then was the full inclusion of people from every family, nation, language, and people, right, into the people of God. And the way that some people in the church were insisting on circumcision wasn't about circumcision as the, as the sign of the promise anymore, but they were essentially saying at that time, in order to be saved, you must not only believe in Jesus, but you must also identify as culturally Jewish. So Paul is saying, no, no, it's not knowing Jesus plus a cultural heritage. It's not knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, plus accomplishing a rite of passage that makes you part of God's family. It's, it's just trusting Jesus, guys. That's what Paul was all about. It's just trusting Jesus. So he can say, this is kind of a weird phrase for us today, but, but this group that was, that, was, uh, that was engaged in this practice in this way uh, refer, seemed to have referred to themselves as the circumcision. Wow, good for you guys, <laughs> right? But Paul can say, we are the circumcision, by which he means the recipients of God's promises. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And by put no confidence in the flesh, Paul is saying Christians don't find their identity in their cultural slash ethnic background or even in the good things that they do. That's not what it's about. Paul offers himself as an example of this. I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. That's what he says. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, even obeying the law, the good commands of God, is considered worthless. Worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Why? See, Paul knew that even though he was dedicated and devoted on the outside, 
his heart was messed up on the inside. It was flawed on the inside. It was twisted on the inside. His zeal for doing the right thing had been twisted by that flawed heart so that he ended up persecuting the church, approving of of even the death of Stephen, we're told, the, the, the deacon Stephen. And it, this hardly resembled the command to love your neighbor, right? Which is found even in the Hebrew Bible. It's not something new in Christianity. Love your neighbor is found in the Old Testament too. See, his flawed heart had, had twisted that zeal. And Paul realized that Jesus had accomplished something on the cross. That was so much better than just having the right resume because Christ made a way there for Paul to have a right heart. What Jesus accomplished for Paul, and for me and you, by the way, was better than simply helping us to do the right thing. Now, Jesus does help help us do the right thing. But the way that he does that is he makes a way for our, our heart to be transformed so that we can desire the right thing. The good news that had, that had taken hold of Paul was that Christ freely gave himself as a gift on the cross for you. Defeating the power of sin and death and the power of our own flawed hearts there so that he can give himself now by the Spirit to you. No strings attached. Paul saw in this act of love on the cross the fulfillment of everything the Messiah, the great rescuer of Israel, was supposed to be and do. And he found it confirmed and celebrated in the resurrection, which we're going to get to in just a couple of weeks. This is a a massive shift in identity for Paul. Huge shift from just being in the right group, kind of doing the right things, but not really desiring the right things. There's a huge shift in identity from all that stuff to then just belonging to Christ. That was enough for Paul by the time he's writing this letter. His goals had shifted from accomplishments to knowing and being known by Jesus. Knowing and being known by Jesus and allowing his actions to be transformed by that relationship. Now, the thing is, the scope and implications of who Christ is and and what he's done vastly outweighs anything that you and I could possibly be or do. We just couldn't do what he did on the cross. Yet, he invites us to be with him, to trust him, to be adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father alongside him. Romans 8 can never get over it. Jesus, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. To be transformed, to be like him, to to have what we do flow from his spirit and not ours. In a word, Jesus invites us to communion with him. He invites us to communion with him. And that's why getting to know Christ is the supreme Christian activity. Because that's the essential invitation. And that's why Paul could say, Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There is nothing in this world too good to give up to know Christ more. Do you believe that? I don't always believe it. I'll be honest. I don't always believe it. But Paul certainly did give up a lot. I mean, his reputation, his power, his livelihood, his physical safety, his freedom. Ultimately, he gave up his life. Yet, he could say that the loss of all those things was nothing. Those things were rubbish in comparison to communion with Christ, to knowing and being known by Jesus. A note here about the word rubbish in the English Standard Version of the Bible. In the Greek, this is actually a very crass word referring to excrement. So there is a better word, a fairly common four-letter word that we could use in English translations that would more accurately make the point. No publisher has been brave enough so far to put it in the Bible I'm not brave enough to say it in church, but you'd know it if you heard it. Point is, Paul could hardly make a stronger statement here rhetorically. Christ is our identity, and Christ is our purpose, and Christ is our pursuit. He is our goal. Because in him, because of his faithfulness, we find righteousness. And in trusting him, we not only find it, we receive it. Which means our whole selves are going to be redeemed. That also means our old selfish selves will die. These bodies too that we have right now will probably die. So we will become like Christ in his death, as Paul says. But since Jesus was resurrected in a new body, you and I will also be resurrected with new bodies and live forever with him. That's the purpose. That's the prize. So Paul goes on in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beautiful passage couple of things in there. One, we can't take it for granted. We're not there yet. Can't get cocky, right? We're all on a journey and real Christian maturity realizes that our transformation is far from complete. Yet, second thing, we can press into it. We can enter the race with confidence. We can release anything for the sake of Christ, leave it behind, press forward because we don't have to worry about catching him. He's already caught us at the cross. So here's the good news. You can be with Christ. You can even start that here and now, today. You can have Christ in every circumstance of your life. You can have that relationship. And it doesn't matter where you come from, what you've accomplished or what you've not accomplished. Jesus will be enough for you. It doesn't matter what you've gained or what your losses are. Ultimately, those things are going to be irrelevant. But I will say that sometimes circumstances of loss are opportunities to recognize and receive. 
Jesus. Now, I, I don't think, hear, hear me here, I, I don't think that natural losses of, of loved ones, of jobs, treasured places and things in this life are usually something that God wishes for us. He doesn't want us to suffer um, on that level. But there are moments, because of the sinful world that we live in, that comfort, companionship, and security are taken away for whatever reason. And see, when you realize in those moments, because you're not so distracted, it's an opportunity to focus. When you realize in those moments, in those times, all this stuff's been taken away from you, but you still have Christ. That no one can take him away from you. An aspect of eternity kind of pulls into greater focus in those moments. Sometimes a kind of loss is required for us to recognize and receive what's most worth having, who's most worth having. Did you know that as the community of Christ, uh, a community of God gather around Jesus, that he has promised to be in our midst? I mean, this is not uh, an abstract idea. This is an actual promise that he's given us. This isn't something we made up, that where two or three are gathered in his name, he's going to be there. So, St. Peter talks about the church as a temple, right? A habitation of the living God made up of living stones. That's, that's me and you, right? Everyone out there is looking around for meaning and purpose. And they will look in all the wrong places until they start looking for Jesus. And so part of our response together We've been talking a lot about individual response so far, but part of, part of our response together to our relationship with Christ communally is to extend his invitation to communion to our neighbors so that when they look in here, not in this building, hopefully in this building, but not just in this building, but when they look in our community, when they enter into our fellowship, they find the people that have become the place where the presence of Christ is found. In other words, it is to say to those around us, are you looking for meaning? And the answer is always yes. Everybody's always looking for meaning. Are you looking for meaning? Come and see. Come and see. Be with Jesus, with us. It's a big responsibility that we have. And so, We have to be careful because when we lose our focus on communion with Christ, when we allow that to kind of become a secondary thing, when we lose Jesus as our reason for uh, not just the season, but existence, our sensitivity to the presence of God among us is going to be diminished. And our attention and our desires and our confidence will be drawn toward other things. And the world will take note. They will see it. No doubt about it. So we see this happen all the time. And it's not to stand in judgment. It's just to be aware. This, this can happen. So like Paul said, we, we, can't, we can't take it for granted. We've got to stay focused. Let's be vigilant so we don't get distracted. So we have to encourage each other. We have to encourage each other. We need to come alongside one another and remind each other that our identity is found in Christ and our purpose is found in Christ and our future is is found in Christ. So that when we are together and we're walking with each other through the difficult times, we can encourage each other that we have nothing to fear 
We have nothing to fear in terms of loss. But we have everything to gain in knowing Jesus more. And I don't want to leave you with just kind of no practical instruction here. How do you know Christ, though? How do you get to know him? How do you have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, he's invisible <laughs> to us. So that, that's kind of hard. Well, by spending time with him. <laughs> You're like, how do I spend time with an invisible guy? Okay, look, Jesus ascended into heaven and sent us his spirit. The Holy Spirit. And he has indwelt, we, we talked about being built up as living stones. He has indwelt us as a community. He's indwelt us as individuals. And so when we pray, we are speaking to the Holy Spirit that is right here with us all the time. So we can always spend time with him just by directing our minds and our hearts towards that presence of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we say, Holy Spirit, come, we are spending time with the Lord. You know what else we can do is we can read his teachings and his story in the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation is the story of Jesus. And we're told that the Holy Spirit illuminates that for us. So that when we read the Bible, we are, we are hearing God speak to us in a special way. So we listen in the Bible. We speak to him in prayer. We also listen for him to speak through his people, right? If the Holy Spirit's in me, he's in you. Then when you're speaking to me, it might be Jesus. Isn't that cool? I mean, think about that when you are with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus might be speaking to you. Be looking for that. Be looking for that. And of course, when we come to the table, we receive Christ in such a tangible way in the bread and in the wine as he gives us his very body and blood to strengthen our faith, to give us grace. And so Lent, we've, we've been in this time. We still have one more week, two more weeks to go. Lent is this perfect time to intensify this practice. To voluntarily experience a little bit of loss, to maybe give something up. It's not too late <laughs> to give something up, to experience the great joy of a deeper communion with Jesus. Every relationship is based on trust, right? So negative relationships have very little trust, while positive relationships have a lot of trust. But trust isn't built overnight. It requires both quality of time and quantity of time. And that's how we can begin to, to spend time with the Lord, to pursue that relationship. And that's just scratching the surface, of course. So many things can, can push the passionate pursuit of Christ to, to the fringes of our, of our life. Work, play, stress, laziness, our own bad habits, our forgetful natures. We forget that Jesus is to be found in serving others sometimes. We let our laziness get the best of us. Sometimes, and I don't want to neglect this. And guys, I know I'm preaching a long time today. I know I'm preaching a long time today. That, and, and maybe that's my bad. But th this is so important. Th this is the core 
This is the core of what it means to be a disciple. And the core of what it means for our community. Uh, so I don't want to neglect this. Because we're all about service. I, I hope we're all about service in our church. But we can sometimes get so busy doing things for God that we forget to be with God. All right? It doesn't mean you need to stop doing things for God, but it does mean you probably need a, a shift in perspective. <laughs> okay? And I know that that's a challenge for me as a pastor, but that's a challenge for you as a lay person as well. So many things can push that passive pursuit of Christ to the fringes of our life. But I want to encourage you, and I want to state unequivocally, that if it requires letting go or even losing something that is dear to you, cultivating deep communion with Jesus will always be worth it. It will always be enough, and you will never regret it. So with Paul then, brothers and sisters, let's press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. Amen.